I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Neon, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. And this time round, we are looking at 2001, A Space Odyssey, which means we're going to be looking at this in a number of different angles. First of all, of course, yes, I think we have to talk about film history. This is a super important super respected movie in the canon of cinema. Then there's obviously the stuff that's actually in the film, so we'll be looking at space history, but perhaps most interestingly, we're going to be looking at the history of human evolution, in particularly the early era of hominids and the Paleolithic, because... A lot of people tend to forget about this. The first 20 minutes of this film is, in essence, a short film about human-like apes becoming ape-like humans, which really is a very early part of all of our history. So, before we get further with Neon, it's worth mentioning you can keep the conversation going even when this podcast stops. You can go and talk to us on Twitter. There seems to be the hot way people like talking to us. So we're Neon Podcast on Twitter. I'm Jem Daduchu, and funnily enough, you'll be able to find Jem Daduchu on Twitter as well. And if you would like to help Neon, as I keep saying, join the Neon Revolution by going to patreon.com forward slash Neon Podcast. You can get involved and, you know, support us financially in any way you want to. But also, if you just don't have the dough, go to the actual podcast app, whatever you're actually listening to this on and give us a review uh, five stars would be lovely thank you very much all of this in its own way helps spread the word You've been here for three and a half hours. How many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty good place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot 
As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, but always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. Let's get into 2001, which is directed by Stanley Kubrick, one of the greatest film directors ever, and the one of the few genius film directors to have never actually won an Oscar. Like Alfred Hitchcock, the Oscars don't half get it wrong sometimes. Now, just on a brief side point on that, a lot of people slam Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump kind of cleaned up at the Oscars to the detriment of Pulp Fiction, which, fast-forwarding 20 years, it's pretty clear which one of those two films was more influential and more important, and certainly more different. But the thing is, I remember before Forrest Gump came out, there was a lot of conversations about uh, <clears throat> from people who'd seen early reviews of it, um, this isn't really very Hollywood. This is a hard sell. You know, there's no particular antagonist to it. It sort of spreads over 20, 30 years. The central character's a sort of hard to like guy because he's so insular and possibly a little slow, educationally speaking. And so there was a big question mark. Is this going to be a commercial film? Now, it turned out to be a monster hint and where we get the Bubba Gump shrimp chain from. It comes literally from the movie. So, bizarrely, it was a much bigger hit than perhaps anybody anticipated, and then we had a bit of a backlash going, oh, well, it was always pandering to the masses. No, really, it wasn't. It was quite an unusual movie, but yeah, Pulp Fiction's better. Anyway, so, the Oscars tend to get things wrong, and when 2001 was potentially up for a Best Director Oscar for Stanley, it went to Oliver, the musical from Oliver Twist. Now, that's a fine film. It's actually one of my favourite musicals, but if you're going to compare direction versus direction, I think it's pretty obvious which one's the better directed film. It's also worth remembering that in the late 1960s and sort of 70s, box office grew over time. Big openings is actually something that's kind of a 21st century thing, and so when you look at something like but Return of the Jedi, the last of the original trilogy, it made a lot of money. But if you look at how much it opened to, it wasn't a massive amount of money because it stayed in cinemas a long time. And it's the same thing for 2001. Initially, it was not a hit, but it kept sticking. If you have not seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, trying to describe it, unlike most of the other things I talk about in pop culture, is sort of relatively straightforward. 2001's hard. It deals with very big themes, and it has a very famously ambiguous ending. Stanley Kubrick actually spent a lot of time with the screenplay stripping out the dialogue. He very much wanted this to be a visual experience, and for you to understand and lay your own interpretation on this film through the music and imagery, and it works. There are some people I know who are very Christian who see it as a movie about belief and about God's blessing of human beings. And I know atheists who look at it and go, yes, this is all about evolution and all about man's insignificance in the greater universe. And both of those readings can be taken from a movie. And I would say it's a sign of Kubrick's genius that both of those completely diametrically opposite points of view 
are equally valid when it comes to this movie. So, exactly what it's about, hmm, it's it's basically in three chunks, okay? There's chunk number one, as I said at the, uh, at the top of the podcast, which is set in very ancient times, a couple of million years ago, with apes who interact with this black monolith. Yeah, they're basically apes, and I'll come come into more of that in a, in a minute when we talk about the real history or prehistory in this case. But there we got some apes, and they're interacting with their surroundings, and things aren't going particularly well for them. But then one morning they wake up, and there is this perfectly oblong black monolith, which as soon as the light hits it, it emits this sort of noise, this information, and these apes become more intelligent. And it then has one of the most famous uh, match edits, match cuts in cinema history, where to this swelling music, you have this ape in slow motion using a bone as a tool, or in this case, a weapon, and he hurls it up into the air. And as it spins in the air, you, it then cuts to a space station going round planet Earth, or this satellite-type thing going round planet Earth. In other words, taking us from the very first technology to now cutting-edge technology of 2001, which is when the middle chunk of the film is set, where basically we got these scientists and something's being discovered on the moon, and in essence there's a, a group of scientists who eventually see what's being dug up, and it's another one of these monoliths. Now, I guess I'm giving you some spoilers here, but the reason why I'm doing this now is, well, for for starters, I'm a huge fan of the film, but also it was made in 1968. This is 2018. It is the 50th anniversary of this film, and it still looks good. I mean, really good. I would argue it looks a lot better than A Clockwork Orange. Now, Clockwork Orange has a notoriety to it. It's very violent. It's got things to say about society in different ways. I don't know if I'm going to do one on on Clockwork Orange. We'll see. But the point is, they used bits of London. Kubrick, for the record, in the 60s, he decided to move to London and, or England, I should say, and stay here. And so pretty much all the rest of his films are filmed in in London, right up to, uh, or England, I should say, right up to Eyes Wide Shut, which came out in 1999. They're in a sort of department store with some toys. That's Hamley's on Regent Street in central London. But it's all carefully edited, and there's secondary uh, units sort of doing footage of like New York for something like Eyes Wide Shut. So it feels like it's America, even though it's all shot in sort of like the leafy home counties. I digress. Oh, just I sorry, I just have to put this bit in here. Full Metal Jacket set in Vietnam, uh, big fighting around Hue in 1968, uh, filmed in Canary Wharf in the 1980s. Canary Wharf has never reminded me of Vietnam, but Stanley Kubrick can get you to believe it's one of the things that makes him a genius. So again, you got pretty much this entire film, including the African Serengeti of the Paleolithic is basically the outside parking lot. I think it's the parking lot of Shepperton Studios. And it is worth remembering that Britain does have an amazing background in cinema. I mean, yes, the first world famous cinema star was Charlie Chaplin, who was English, but he was doing this all in Hollywood. But you've got Shepperton and Pinewood and Leavesden, these are major studios 
where you've had the likes of James Bond filmed, a lot of the Star Wars movies filmed, obviously things like Harry Potter, that should uh, shouldn't surprise you, but things like <clears throat> Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Alien movies, at least the early ones. There is a lot of Hollywood, in inverted commas, actually filmed in Britain. Anyway, so we've got Stanley Kubrick making this film in the 1960s, 2001, and he really put a lot of effort into trying making it real, which is where I think he sort of he went somewhere a bit different in terms of his visual imagery for A Clockwork Orange, and that's what's aged it. There's a scene where we've got the main character getting a very small cassette to play, but that just looks really old and old-fashioned. Whereas in the middle part of this movie, in set in the year 2001, which obviously they got the tech wrong because we do not have a moon base in 2001, still don't in 2018, oh well. But you have scenes where people are basically scraping each other. And on the spaceship later on, you've got people who are clearly looking at iPads. Now, at the time, you didn't quite get what they were doing. It looked like, well, are they just staring at oddly shaped screens in on, on the table? Why the why has the table got weirdly shaped screens? But obviously they had to cut the TV screens into the table. But now when you watch it, you go, yeah, they're, they're looking on an iPad. Did they have iPads in 1968? No, no, they didn't. But this is this is how well Kubrick was able to guess some of this stuff. Indeed, going back to his earlier film from the 1960s, uh, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, uh, there is a, a large chunk of the film is set in a B-52 bomber, which in 1964, it was a very restricted secret weapon that the US Air Force had. <clears throat> but Stanley Kubrick had managed to see a couple of photos of uh, inside of B-52, and he started making guesses about how it would all be laid out and looking at other military equipment and da-da-da-da. And bottom line, he basically guessed so right that the uh, the CIA got a bit worried about has Stanley Kubrick been spying on B-52s? He hadn't. He just used his sort of, he was almost like a, a mechanic. He it's sort of filmmakers almost secondary to the the fact that he understood engineering first. He's a bit like Da Vinci in that way. Anyway, you can tell I've got a soft spot for him. But his so the middle bit is in sort of two thousand and one where they discover one of these monoliths on the moon, and as soon as the sunlight hits it, you get this piercing noise, and then it just simply cuts to a spaceship traveling because they had a a broadcast. The broadcast went from that monolith on the moon all the way to Jupiter. So we've now got a, um, a manned mission going to Jupiter. And the, the, the large spaceship is run by an artificial intelligence called HAL, the HAL 9000, which a number of people have mentioned is, if you look at it, its one letter uh, below IBM is HAL. Uh, or what I should say above. Anyway, so the, uh, um, the, the point is, yeah, it, it, it maybe it's a clever play on that, or maybe it just sounds good, and it's just a bit of a coincidence. It's Sometimes it's hard to tell with Stanley Kubrick. And then the final part of the movie, after Hal, for some reason, who is an infallible computer, goes crazy and tries to kill the astronauts, uh, one remaining uh, astronaut, Dave Bowman, Dave, <laughs> what are you doing, Dave? Sorry, that is my attempt at impersonating Hal. Uh, he then continues the mission, and there seems to be a floating monolith orbiting Jupiter, and he goes into it, into this weird, starscapey, trippy, weird thing. And then eventually, right at the end, he kind of sees himself getting older and older, and is eventually left by, as a very old man looking at some uh, 
one of these monoliths again. And then you have this large floating fetus traveling back to Earth to some amazing classical music. <laughs> As I'm saying this, it sounds crazy. As you're watching it, it's equally crazy, but also awe-inspiring. And really, seeing it's so visual, maybe a podcast isn't the best way to describe 2001 A Space Odyssey. But it's it's really interesting. So for starters, I said it was a cult classic that kind of kept going. Because of this incredibly trippy, weird, surreal bit at the end, there were it was apparently a lot of hippies in the 60s going, oh yeah, man, you should sort of do drugs and see this movie. It's like a, it's like live acid trip, man. If you like, I would say this about 2001. It is my favorite film that I can't really watch all of. Because going back to that very weird, surreal bit as Dave is sort of constantly going deeper and deeper into this sort of stargate weird interdimensional travel bit, which apparently uses some of the earliest computer graphics ever. Um, I think it's called rotoscoping, but I could be wrong with that. And some of it's clearly just using sort of negative shots of things like uh, coastline and seas and then sort of, sh- sort of re-edited in weird colours. It goes on for about nine and a half minutes. There is no dialogue. You occasionally get sort of a, a, a whole chorus going, ah, which gets a bit freaky. There's close-ups of eyes blinking. I think it's Dave's. But the, here's the thing. In, if this was made now, and I would challenge anybody, people go, oh, wow, it's really trippy. It's weird. You need that to last for a little while. Okay, fine. Let it last for two minutes. Because do you know what? Every time I watch that film, unless I'm watching it with somebody who's it's the first time they're seeing it, every time I get to that bit, I just fast forward. There is no dialogue. There is no point to it rather than the experience. And once you've done the experience once, it's a bit dull. And because Kubrick stripped out all the dialogue, there are large tracks of this film where you just have to go with it. Because if you're looking for things to happen, they do, but really slowly. (laughs) So, you know, I'm, is it a perfect movie? I don't know. Is there such a thing as a perfect movie? I don't know. But, you know, I think it does have a few little issues with it. But Kubrick spent four years prepping this movie. Indeed, he he worked very closely with Arthur C. Clarke. He wanted to create something. Uh, he wanted to create a serious sci-fi movie because pretty much before 2001, sci-fi films existed but they were all B-movies, and all the spaceships basically looked like a V-2 rocket, and everyone had ray guns and went pew-pew all the time. They were rubbish. They were relatively low budget. They were kind of World War II movies just set in space. They they were of a low quality and rather looked down on. I guess the other one that sort of uh, elevates it is Planet of the Apes. But that isn't, that may be science fiction in its literal sense, but it isn't really using much in the way of spaceships. The spaceship itself disappears in the first 10 minutes of the movie. So anyway, you know, 2001 is the starting point of high quality, high budget sci-fi. I've seen a number of people because it has been released again on the big screen and it's going to look amazing on the big screen. I haven't seen it uh, myself on the big screen, but I've had a number of people saying, do you know what? Now that I'm revisiting this and seeing it on the screen, George Lucas ripped off pretty much all the visuals for this for for, uh, Star Wars. And it's worth remembering that 2001 came out in 1968. Man landed on the moon in 1969. This was 
the same time as something like Star Trek, where people are sitting around in velour and there doesn't seem to be, everyone seems to have it's like fake gravity in their ships. And there's no attempt to make it look like a, a real spaceship. And because Kubrick spent so much time trying to make things look real and sort of guessing at the tech, that it's led to a whole bunch of conspiracy theories around If you look at 2001, it pretty much is his message to the rest of the world that he faked the moon landings. In fact, it goes so far, there is uh, an entire documentary called Room 257, 257, 237. Can't remember which way around. It's the door in The Shining. And actually, it's about The Shining, but there's a big segue in the middle of it saying, oh, well, the reason why Danny's wearing that knitted jumper with Apollo 11 on it is because it's another nod by Kubrick saying, I fake the moon landings. And, and you know, it then goes into look at look at 2001, look how realistic it is and la 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 la. la. Look, 2001's really good. But it, there are some things that you just can't fake with the moon landing. One of my favorite examples is if you look at photos that Buzz Aldrin took or that Neil Armstrong took on the moon, all the shadows are parallel. You cannot do that with normal lighting in a studio. They sort of go off at different angles. Parallel would only happen three ways. One, if your light source is a really long way away, like if you're on the moon and the sun is shining to the off camera. Okay, that's the one I'm going for. Or two, you're using lasers as lighting. You could create them parallel like that. Or three, you're using computer graphics. Now, as good as 2001 is, you can see the map paintings and the sort of the computer graphics. And computer graphics, even today, something like uh, gravity, in uh, only a few years ago, even that occasionally has very, very good special effects. But even then, occasionally you can sort of see the joints. You can't see the joints when it comes to the moon landings, although the, the. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Admittedly, the actual picture is a bit rough around the edges. But going back to those those um, parallel sh- uh, shadows for a moment, 
Number two, lasers. Well, in the 60s, they did have lasers, but two problems with that. One, lasers were staggeringly, staggeringly, staggeringly expensive. So it would have cost probably more to uh, get a whole rack of lasers to film and fake the moon landings than it would be to just do the moon landings. And the only lasers they had in the 60s were red ones. So no, you can't get color photos if it's all bathed in red light. Doesn't it doesn't work with lasers? It doesn't work with special effects. And yeah, look, Stanley Kubrick, and you know, it's an absolute testament to how great Stanley Kubrick is as a film director that there are some people who take this seriously. Indeed, Christopher Nolan did a nod to it um, in his movie Interstellar by using that conspiracy theory as the reason why people aren't flying into space anymore. You've got to admire just the sheer ingenuity of some of these ideas. However, as good as the special effects are. They're not perfect. You you can sort of see the you know see times when it doesn't quite work. But what's lovely is it is the first time where you see people like in zero gravity and sort of you know trying to come up with ways around it. And the the reason why you got the uh, the Blue Danube waltz is actually that was not the original music, but uh, apparently Kubrick was editing the scene where the ship was coming into dock on the space station. And he was planning to use other music, but this other guy, when he saw it with the other music, went, why aren't you using Blue Danube? I thought that's what he was going to use. And Kubrick said, no, I was just using that. That was just background music while I was working. I went, play it again with it, and you'll realize you've edited it to that. And Kubrick went, oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. So, um, you know, there's happenstance in there. Kubrick isn't quite as uh, as obsessive as you think. Indeed, the irony is we all think of Kubrick as a bit of a recluse, a bit of a bit wacky. But when Kubrick was going to start working with Arthur C. Clarke, again, a bit like Kubrick, a very respected, although it's sci-fi, very much respected in sort of he's trying to bring real science to the science fiction, so much so that a Clarke orbit is named after him because he came up with the idea where if a satellite is traveling at, at the right speed as the Earth's turning, then to all intensive purposes, it's stationary in orbit. And that's a Clarke orbit. And that's down to to Arthur C. Clarke, a writer, coming up with that and why you get Sky TV or Netflix nowadays. Anyway, um, so the point is, uh, uh, when Kubrick found out he was going to be potentially working with Clarke, he really liked his writing, but thought Clarke was a recluse. So Clarke was the crazy one, according to Kubrick, although they very quickly, Clarke disabused him of that. And they apparently got on really well and they spent four years together. It's all based on one of Clark's short stories called The Sentinel. Um, but then you had the book 2001 written. It was originally meant to be written, and then they did take the screenplay from it. But in the end, it was written concurrently as they were filming. So it, it has some differences, but of course, it does fill in some of the blanks. And one of the things about modern day cinema is we've lost this movie book adaptation thing. Occasionally, they can get a bit weird. Like I remember The Hobbit movie adaptation book and it's like well the hobbit's been around since the 1930s why do i need to buy a new copy but the movies were quite different i digress sorry um but yeah i I remember weirdly mad max beyond thunderdrome because we weren't 15 we we couldn't see mad max beyond thunderdrome so the book version of it went round the school like wildfire as did the the book there is a book of rocky four I mean, I'm not sure. I have no recollection of what's inside that whatsoever, but pretty much any big hit in the 60s, 70s and 80s, maybe into the 90s, I don't, I'm not entirely sure, had a book version of it, which did sometimes fill in the blanks. And for the record, Clark continued the story of 2001. There's 2001, then there's 2010, then there's 2061, 
and then there's 3001. Now, full disclosure, I've only read the first two, and I read them 30 years ago, so I can't tell you an awful lot about them. But the point is, the books continue the story. And indeed, there was a film of 2010 that came out in, I think, 1984, I'm guessing there. It was sort of like mid-80s, which which I actually quite liked as a kid, but apparently, you know, obviously it lacked the sheer scale, the sheer vision of 2001. But anyway, let's go back to the beginning, right to the beginning, as indeed 2001 does, because the Paleolithic era of our development is the longest period in the story of humanity. So this is the year 2018, which is a slightly arbitrary year. It's basically based on allegedly the birth of Jesus, although I'm going to tell you right now something that's going to blow your mind. So the Romans didn't have the number zero, okay? We all know the Roman for one, that's that's I, or one, Um, but the, the, the zero was invented in India, and then it was brought to Europe through the great mathematicians of the Islamic Golden Age, and basically reached Europe in the Middle Ages. Now, I'm actually thinking about doing a whole podcast about sort of numbers and sort of weird, freaky things later on. But the point is this, when they were working out the calendar, it's not, it goes basically 1 BC to 1 AD. There's no 0 AD, which you should do if you're going from minuses to positives, which means this isn't 2018, this is 2017. So it just shows you how arbitrary the whole, the whole calendar thing is, okay? So let's perhaps go back to, let's say, the Iron Age. Fine, in which case that happened round about 2,600 years ago, give or take, depends where you are in the world. Let's go back to uh, the, the Neolithic so we're now talking about 4000 BC, the Mesolithic. So this is where we've only got stone tools. We haven't invented agriculture and things like that, or cities, etc. So that's about 8,000 years ago. Now, the Mesolithic is the, there are basically three parts of the Stone Age. I mentioned Neolithic, where we got farming. Basically, it's the same as the Bronze Age or Iron Age. It's just they don't have metals yet. Okay, we, we, have, we have cities and towns and fortifications and burials and religious sites and things like that. That's all Neolithic. And Mesolithic, we're talking you know, further back, more sort of hunter-gatherer type stuff. But then you've got the Paleolithic. Now, I mentioned 4,000 years Neolithic, 8,000 years Mesolithic. The Paleolithic goes back 2 million years. So if this podcast was all about, you know, the different eras of humanity, I would have to spend 99.9% of it just on the Paleolithic and then everything else gets jammed into the last 10 seconds of the podcast or something like that. So the Paleolithic is really fascinating because it's the one part of our human story where A, we're not actually homo sapiens, we're not actually humans for most of it, and secondly, there are vying different shades of humanity going on. Some people think that Neanderthals are actually part of the human story. They're not. They're an offshoot. They're a branch off the, the, the trunk of hominids. We were competing with them, and we beat them. It seems sometimes we killed them. Also, we bred with them. Your average person from Europe is, has you know, r- roughly round about 1% Neanderthal DNA in them. So yeah, there was, it wasn't just war, there was also peace and love too. 
But we're going even further back to things like Australopithecus, Ramidus, uh, and Lucy, uh, and Eve, and, and these sort of incredibly early hominids. Now, what does hominid mean? Hominid is, well, again, another common misconception is that we evolved from things like chimpanzees. No, chimpanzees evolved in one direction, and we evolved another direction from a common ancestor that might look more like a chimpanzee than the modern human, and that's what they're going for clearly in 2001. But that's basically a hominid. It's, it's, it's not quite a chimpanzee, but it sure as hell isn't a human yet. And what we've got here is a, a really good reenactment. When you speak to anthropologists, they say the opening 20 minutes of 2001 is probably the most accurate portrayal of early hominid life that's ever been committed to film. That again shows you that look, Stanley Kubrick was not only trying to get the science right of 2001, he was also trying to get the history right of the Paleolithic era. What a genius, okay? So, we're talking about the, the African, the Great Rift Valley in Africa, modern day Kenya, where sadly, because of some Christian extremist groups, they're trying to deny evolution and actually are going out of their way to sometimes damage or hide some of these early hominid finds, which is a crying shame because it's showing you that we're all come from common ancestors. There should be no racism because we genuinely all are part of one great family. The other thing is that in the Paleolithic era, we start getting seen rudimentary stone tool usage. Now, admittedly, they use other tools as well. The problem with calling things the Stone Age is that wasn't the only thing they used. But unlike leather or antler or or wood, that will be destroyed over 2,000 years. The great thing about rocks is they don't degrade. So that's why we call it the Stone Age. It's the easiest stuff to find, basically. But actually, it's a bit of a misnomer. I guess it'd be a bit like saying nowadays, it's the plastic age, whereas we do actually use other things other than plastic. But sadly, we use too much plastic. There's no doubt about that. And I want to take now 2001 and the uh, Great, Great Rift Valley in Africa and then move it over to the British Museum. Because in the British Museum, they actually have some early Paleolithic tools, some simple grinders and sort of choppers. These are admittedly not as old as two million, but these were about a million years old. And what I find fascinating is everyone runs around the British Museum to see, oh, let's look at the mummies. Oh, let's look at the Rosetta Stone. Now, look, these are all cool stuff, no doubt about it. But that's the only stuff in the British Museum not made by humans. Everything else in the British Museum you might think is old. The ancient Babylonian stuff and the ancient Egyptian stuff from the early dynasties is really proper old. But it's peanuts. It's, it's iPad level of not old at all when you compare it to these tools. And everybody just walks straight past them because they're just, no, they're rocks. Don't care. No, look at them. Think about them. If we had not worked out how to manipulate our environment and create tools, you right now would not be standing there in clothes in a large building. You know, that's how important it is. That's the start of humanity. And that's exactly what you see at the beginning of 2001, because it's it's this monolith teaching this tribe of 
or little collection, family group of hominids. They're basically vying over a waterhole. They start off and they're by the waterhole and another b- bunch of hominids turns up at a waterhole. It's a rare resource. It's hot. And, you know, we need, we need the water. And they're sort of shied away. And you can see that they're very downcast. And then this monolith comes to arrives, goes information, information, information into their brains. And then they start working out, oh, we could use these bones lying around and use them as weapons and they fight and the way they do it these are real actors but they've clearly been watching chimpanzee behavior because it's sort of like attacks and then dive backwards and then oh that works i dive back in again it's incredibly accurate in terms of its anthropology and so uh, they basically beat up the other group they get back the waterhole and then you see this ape hominid smashing up these bones with this big bone and chucking it into the air and then you cut to this satellite. Now, it was originally, it was always in Kubrick's mind to say that that satellite that you see in 2001, that cut, that famous cut. So it's gone from one tool. I, ex- I explained it earlier, going from one tool to another tool, to the space age, literally. Okay. However, it was originally meant to be from one weapon, the club, to a nuclear weapons platform. That's technically what that thing is although it's never mentioned at all it was meant to be in some kind of voiceover but the voiceover was cut and also kubrick was worried that this was the first film after dr strangelove and he didn't want to be only associated with nuclear war and indeed there was this idea that when that baby the the star child comes back to earth one of the early things was and then he triggers all the nuclear weapons to to kill planet earth but that was considered a bit bleak and as i said that to you you're probably sitting there going yeah that would be a really bleak ending to a movie Anyway, so so it does show you that in, in just one cut, that in one way, humanity has changed massively, but sadly, in another way, we haven't. And once again, it's a sign of the real genius of Kubrick. I think I've used that word over and over again. You can tell I'm a huge fan of his. I love all his films, but I'm going to turn around and say, if you want to start saying there are problems with them, I'm going to have to agree with you. They're not perfect, okay? But they're pretty close. And to anybody who says, oh, 2001's rubbish, or The Shining isn't as scary as it should be, whatever it may be, I'm going to turn around and say this. Oh, yeah? You do it then. You try. Because, man, Kubrick's good. The one other bit I wanted to to say, if you like, is the AI, the, the HAL in the spaceship. By the way, when you first see that spaceship going to Jupiter, you get this overhead shot and you track all the way back across the spaceship. It just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. Just when you think it's stopped, it keeps going and then eventually get the engines, which is exactly the same as the Star Destroyer shot in in uh, Star Wars. But yes, with with Hal, apparently, again, when you read round it, the reason why he went crazy is he was told that he had to basically be completely flawless and honest with the crew and protect them. But on the other hand, he was told not to tell the crew that they were technically expendable and therefore, and also to keep secrets from them. And this logical juxtaposition led to him basically sort of like spinning out into an error and then therefore just thinking, okay, fine, well, I might as well get rid of them then, which is which is fascinating, really. Uh, it, it's interesting. And Stephen Hawking, who sadly passed away this year, he's he has been on record, and a number of scientists have said, why are we racing towards AI? Because AI is likely to be one of the biggest threats to humanity, particularly with all this interconnectedness. I mean, in the 1980s, if an AI became self-aware, all it could do was basically play an Atari. There wasn't an awful lot else it could do. But now it's on the internet. Uh, it could cause all kinds of havoc and destruction. And yeah. So 
again, this is something that scientists are genuinely worried about today, which Stanley Kubrick foreshadowed in 1968. The guesses that both he and Clark made were by and large pretty good. Apart from expecting us to actually have a moon base, apart from that, virtually everything else they nailed. And it's, it is remarkable. If it's been a long time since you've seen it, I really encourage you to do it. I actually was talking to a friend about this recently, very smart friend. He's my age. And he goes, you know what? I've never actually seen it. Well, now's the chance. If you happen to be lucky enough to be in a city which is showing it and you've never seen it before, go and see it in a cinema. And if I put you off by saying, but it's really weird at the end, uh, look, you can, you probably download it off Amazon for like three quid or something like that for a rental. Um, but if you haven't seen it, do. And every time you think, oh, that's a bit like this, that's a bit like that. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not ripping off things you've seen before all those other things have been ripping off from it because it is the source of so much of modern cinema that is neon's take on 2001 a space odyssey do give us a review if you can if you want to help us a little bit more you can go to patreon.com forward slash neon podcast and if you just want to chat to us maybe even tell us which ones you liked or didn't like or hey could you do one on x then go and find us on Neon Podcast on Twitter, or you can always speak to me, I'm Jem Didichu, on Twitter, and on Facebook as well as History Gems with a G. Thanks very much. More Neon goodness soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.